This episode of Talk ADHD is all about coexisting conditions. In it, Andrew and I discuss why coexisting conditions are there, what some of the most common ones are, and more importantly, how they can affect things like assessments, diagnosis, and aftercare for ADHD. We look at the correlation between different conditions and medication, and what they mean to us. It's a fantastically useful episode, and I'm really drawing on Andrew's clinical experience in this. So I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. And please remember, like, subscribe, and do click that notification bell so you know when the next episode of Talk ADHD will be. For now, enjoy episode 10. Aha! Hello! Uh, well, welcome back, everyone. So this is a big episode for us, episode 10 of Talk ADHD. Andrew, we made it, double figures. Who'd have thunk? <laughs> Thank you, first of all, for 10 episodes. Um, I think they've been fantastic, and, and I've certainly learned a lot. And I know the feedback from our community has been really positive. So, yeah, thank you. No, it's um, an absolute pleasure. Um, uh, and it's making me think too. It's not something that I'm giving. I'm, I'm involved in something, and it's, yeah. it's helping me think about what I do in a different way. Excellent. We like that. So... This episode is a really uh, important one. Uh, we're going back to probably one of the most common topics in and around people's understanding of, of neurodiversity, neurodivergent conditions, and particularly ADHD, which is coexisting conditions or comorbid conditions, as they're sometimes called. So this, this knowledge that there are often coexisting things with ADHD and our understanding of what they may be, why some might be picked up before others, um, uh, and how they all interconnect uh, and in some ways affect each other. So I think this will be a really interesting discussion for people. And the aim is really to give you the information that helps point you in the right direction, makes you feel like you're more informed by the end of this and um, as ever we really value your input or uh, your suggestions uh, and we welcome you joining the whatsapp community uh, at the moment as well if you uh, would like to join a conversation there but i think we should begin with a really straightforward question which knowing me won't have a straightforward answer which is this what in your experience andrew are the most common coexisting conditions that go along with ADHD and as a follow-on how do they impact the management of ADHD okay nice straightforward question on adults as always there are many layers to the answers of answer to that um I think the first thing to say about coexisting conditions is often people consider coexisting conditions as add-ons to ADHD and that's mm -hmm. a mistake they're add-ons to being human as is ADHD. So I, th I think you said last week that, that you had that realization of your math with ADHD, not ADHD with math. And mm. I, that is a really important part of understanding coexisting conditions. At the center of any coexisting condition is a person. So these coexisting conditions coexist alongside other, uh, alongside the ADHD which is a feature of humanity rather than it's ADHD plus something. Does that make sense? Perfect sense. Yeah. And 
so moving on from that then, when you look at that from a clinical perspective and you think of it in that way, why do you think people very often don't see that? Why do, why do you think we have this theory of that it's an add-on to? It goes back to things we talked about many times in the podcast, and that's about our relationship with our ADHD. Right. It's, it's, it's as simple as that. If, if your starting point is my ADHD, then you're going to fall foul of this assumption that, that everything else is an add-on. Actually, the starting point is you and, and your experience, and ADHD is as much an add-on as the other coexisting conditions that are more common than not. So it's, it's more usual for someone to have a diagnosis of ADHD and another diagnosis. Right. In now, that's main, interesting. So Oh, hold on. There's a phrase in the main. What does just to pick up so, on that? So th there are the sort of the prevalence statistics of co coexisting conditions alongside ADHD usually say that it's more than fifty percent. So if you have ADHD plus something, then it's more than fifty percent that have that. So okay. I'll take you through that. I'll take you through those. So okay. So so let's go from there then. More than 50%, that means it's, it's more common than I think most people would imagine. Is there a way we can categorise them? Uh, you know, do we, think, do we think we're able to break it down simply? So, so what are, if we, that question, what are the most common conditions? Are they most common? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's what medicine does. It, it breaks it down into, into categories. Um, so breaks down that human experience into things that can be categorized by common features. That's what a diagnosis is. Um, and that's why we sometimes see, so for example, the exclusion of emotional dysregulation from the diagnosis of ADHD. We mm -hmm. all know that emotions run more intense when you have ADHD than when you don't. We live right. that experience every day. But it's not in the diagnostic criteria for ADHD because that's true in other conditions as well. So the, oh, excuse the, me, just symptoms, so the, the symptoms um, are targeted as being specific to each disorder, but actually the human experience can be much broader than the symptom criteria <sighs> defined. Which adds some complexity before we even begin, really, doesn't it? Yeah, which is distilled out by the diagnostic criteria. So it, that's what medicine does. It, it goes into what are the, the unique features of each condition. And that's true across medicine. That's not just true of ADHD. It mm. looks at those specific signs that suggest that that's most likely what it is. And then as we saw in the assessment episode, there's this little sort of criteria at the end, criteria E on DSM-5 for ADHD can't be better explained by another mental health condition. Right. It's a nice, tidy categorizing system that's what diagnosis is all about it's about un classifying things and, and clarifying understanding so that certain treatment approaches can be used because we know that when those criteria are met these treatment approaches work yeah makes perfect sense yeah good with that so that can, can we I don't know. Is it a list? Is it? Is it? Is it? What, what, what are they then? So you know, I, I guess the first thing that would come to my mind is the most common coexisting condition. I think we see spoken about is autism, but not necessarily the most common. Um, I'd, I'd like to group them into four for the purposes of the okay. conversation. So right. it's other neurodevelopmental conditions. 
affective disorders, which are um, mood disorders, so depression, anxiety, specific anxiety disorders, they all sit under affective disorders. There's a blurry one that moves into psychosis, which is a rare coexisting condition, but one that is useful to consider. And then lastly, but by no means least, coexisting physical health problems. Also, I think are useful to consider in answering the question, what are the most common coexisting conditions with ADHD? So yes, quite a lot to cover for all okay. small groups. Yeah, for all, it's just four groups. Okay, so can you give some examples maybe, and I, I know not all of them, but some examples of the conditions that would sit within those four groups as, just to help people sort of picture what you're talking about perhaps? So other neurodevelopmental conditions, predominantly autism, but we're also looking at dyslexia, dyscalculia, dyspraxia. It's now um, coordination disorder. Um, yeah. They, you know, they change the names, but, but the, those other conditions that sit in disorders of brain development. Um, that's one group. Affective okay. disorders, so depression, anxiety, and specific anxiety disorders, psychosis, and then lastly, physical health conditions. So Interesting we'll, one for me, physical health. What, give me an example of a physical health condition. So we see lots of um, commonalities and, and with some genetically inherited physical conditions that also come along with ADHD quite often. So we, we screen for them in our, our um, initial screening to just to make sure that, that, that we're understanding the, 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 the sort of the wider, the wider needs. So it's, it's quite a complex area of considering co coexisting conditions and understandings developing as we've met more people with ADHD. Um, so the, the key ones are um, joint hypermobility, oh. um, POTS, which is postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, mm -hmm. um, some endocrine disorders. They're not, they don't tend to be genetically linked, but they, they, they are an area of interest for a clinician with ADHD. Um, specialism, yeah. So they're the headline ones. Oh, sleep oh. disorders as well. Sleep disorders. Right. Okay. So as you say, they're just headline ones and there will be many, many, many more within those categories. Yes. I mean, out of interest, things like um, OCD, Tourette's, would they sit in the first group, neurodevelopmental for you? So OCD is a specific anxiety disorder. Therefore, it sits in the affective disorders group. Um, Tourette's um, would sit within the neurodevelopmental disorders. Okay. Right. Fine. So, so we, we, you know, because those ones we hear quite frequently as well. Okay. Yeah. Moving on to the last part of that question then. And I suppose there's no easy answer to this. How does that impact the management of ADHD? Now, there's a question. And each of those four headings that I've given you, it, it's slightly different. So the neurodevelopmental disorders, if, if we... Um, introduce treatment for ADHD and we dial up that focus and concentration, what we often see is an amplification of the features of other neurodevelopmental disorders. And this is mm. most commonly seen in, in my practice anyway, I, I think any ADHD clinician would confirm this as well, is when we improve someone's focus and attention and they have coexisting 
autism spectrum condition, we see what looks like an intensification of those social communication difficulties. We see an intensification of the sensory processing issues. Yeah, and I can vouch for that personally because that's what threw me after my diagnosis completely. I think I said this on one of the episodes. Within months, somebody said to me, why have you got worse? And it's not that my ADHD had got worse. It's that I was more autistically presenting than I had ever been. And, yeah. and because so I had not recognised that. You know, you can see, uh, and and we can see it coming, you can see someone who doesn't present with much in the way of autistic traits. When we start treatment for ADHD, out emerge these more challenging autistic traits. Mm -hmm. Because that focus and concentration has been dialed up, mm. the, the offset, so I often talk about a seesaw between ADHD and autism. If you take away the, the impairment, caused by the ADHD, we see a rise in the impairment caused by those autistic traits. Now, that's not either getting worse or, well, I suppose it's the ADHD is getting better, but it's not the autism getting worse as such. It's just no. that the perception is different because your focus is different. Yeah, I get that. Um, and what about I, I, in terms of some of the other categories then? Does, is it a similar process? Is that is that the right word? But a similar process of once the ADHD is being managed, let's say with medication, that let's say, for example, um, OCD may present more. So there's, there's only two answers to that multi-layered question. Um, <laughs> and the, the first answer is, um, I think, probably best to, to tackle the, the, the more straightforward bit first. We see um, low mood and anxiety listed as side effects of treatments for ADHD. And sometimes we see the emergence of those issues when people start treatment for ADHD. Whether that's a side effect is very much up for debate because if you can concentrate better and you concentrate on the things that you don't want to, that can lead to more anxiety, that can lead to more self-criticism and, and aggravate those coexisting affective disorders so mm. potentially you can see an increase in ocd type issues you can but across the board mood um, generalized anxiety those specific anxiety disorders can become worse because the attention is improved i don't think it's fair to say that's a side effect of the medication that's a, that's an effect of the change so i think we've talked about secondary consequences of yeah. treatment in, in the treatment episode and that's very much how i conceptualize those experiences because we are as much as we see changes in autistic traits we're, we're changing how the brain is processing information and we, we can't be specific about what what we improve the focus and concentration upon just that we can Im improve it with medication for ADHD. Yes. Yes. So that's why that, that why the titration process is so important to guide someone through those experiences as the, the thinking style, the cognition changes and that focus and concentration dials up. How do you manage the changes in your response to that happening? Because that's, new um i think we mentioned this in episode one then do you think that's perhaps where new people new to diagnosis need 
a bit more guidance from whatever source it comes, a bit more guidance in terms of you may experience what feels like a dialing up of. You may experience what feels like more emotion. You rather than there's your medication and it will help you focus and concentrate. Yeah. So you you tend to experience a dialing down in intensity of emotion when you start right. treatment for ADHD. However, because your concentration and your focus is improved, you can get taken down alleyways that of, of of psychological challenge that that you need some guidance with so you don't get stuck down there you don't get stuck ruminating you don't get stuck in anxiety and it should right. be part of that that post-diagnostic conversation that that pulls together all of this that it isn't just about okay you meet the criteria for adhd but actually yes you meet the criteria for adhd but there are these other issues and because they're there it's reasonable to think that certain things may happen when you start treatment because you should know that before you commit to treatment. It shouldn't yeah. be something that you comes as a shock that, oh, I'm more worried about things. What, why is that? Is that because I'm taking these tablets? If you know mm. that that's a potential outcome, you can say, oh, Andrew told me about this. Yeah. This, this, is, this isn't a sign that things are getting worse. This is a sign that my cognition is changing. And that's what we're trying to achieve. So how do I manage that? Rather than, oh, these tablets are making me anxious, therefore I shouldn't take them. Okay. And would the, the diagnostic, diagnostic even process differ for someone with ADHD and additional coexisting conditions? Now, I'm going to suggest, let's, let's use an example of someone who knows, first of all. So if you have a, a person that comes to you and says, I know I've got an existing diagnosis of X, what does that change for you or, or does it? It doesn't. It doesn't. Um, the, because of the nature of the assessment process, we have to be assessing for all of that. So an ADHD assessment isn't just an assessment for ADHD. Mm. It's an assessment for ADHD, plus all of these other things that can happen as coexisting conditions, but can also be alternative explanations for the symptoms that are being described as inattention or hyperactivity. Okay. And so, that's interesting. So an, ad, an, an assessment wouldn't be any different, irrespective of, or it shouldn't be any different, irrespective okay. of the coexisting conditions, because an assessment should consider all of those other possibilities. Remember criteria E on the diagnostic mm. criteria that, it, that it's about, can it be better explained by other Something conditions, whether they, whether they are a different diagnosis or whether they exist as coexisting conditions, understanding that is part of the, the assessment process. So at that post-diagnostic stage, you should have that explanation of, okay, this is how all of these features of how you are and who you are relate to each other. And if we do, if, if we do start treatment, this is how those relationships can change. That should be what is happening. If during your diagnostic process, it becomes evident that, that we are in the realms of criteria E, and this is better explained by something else. What's, what's the expected process there? Is that a responsibility at that point for you to tell that person, 
we don't think this is ADHD on its own. We, you know, we recommend you look into it. What what happens then? It depends on the on the configuration of the service. If if it was an overarching service, then ideally the clinician there and then would be saying, it's not ADHD, I'm diagnosing this. But what you find is that because ADHD sits in specialist services, the specialist will say, it's not ADHD, I think we should be looking to these other diagnoses and refer you to a specialist in those. So it's a, it's not about it's, it's not necessarily about the ability of the person assessing for ADHD. It's about how the journey is supported through. So it's no it's not helpful to say I don't think it's ADHD. I think it's bipolar. I'm going to diagnose bipolar um, because what happens then? The ADHD specialist can't deal with that. So it yeah. has to be referred to another specialist who does deal with bipolar, for example. Got you. So diagnostically, nothing changes. Now, we, we, we spoke about this briefly already about coexisting conditions. And if they, how do I phrase it, alter the effectiveness of ADHD medications. Um, and you were touching upon that's really the, the role of titration. Am I right in, in, in framing it like that? So that's what you're watching for in that process is to see what else is happening. Yeah, so the majority of ADHD medications are dopaminergic. They, they increase the levels of synaptic dopamine. That's what they do, and they do that irrespective of what coexisting conditions are there. Mm. Um, and there is an interplay between synaptic dopamine levels and synaptic serotonin levels. For example, it's not it's not a linear thing. They they it's it's organic, and there's a relationship between those. So you increase dopamine levels, serotonin levels change as well. So we can see sort of undulations and ripples through other diagnoses of the. The, the biological impact of introducing an ADHD medication, but we also see that those psychosocial responses as well that we've talked about a little bit in this episode already. Mm, um, right. I think the 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 most challenging of, of the most challenging of the of the coexisting conditions are those ones that sit under the the umbrella of psychosis, because psychosis is largely understood in dopamine theory as excessive synaptic dopamine already further we take the risk of intensifying those psychotic experiences and they come with great risks and and huge personal impacts so it can be difficult but it is not impossible to treat coexisting psychotic disorders alongside ADHD it's quite a rare coexisting condition but then you you know that logically it would be because it's it's excessive dopamine causing that psychosis yeah so you know it's, it's less likely that we're going to see underactive dopamine elsewhere in the brain um, but it does happen um and the, more commonly we see um bipolar affective disorder coexisting with ADHD and it's really important where that where that's the case that the bipolar affective disorder is stabilized first so the treatment of bipolar is very much about giving stability and, and mm. having that that treatment regime in place that that modulates and balances out 
dopamine mm. and other other signals um, is it, and making sure that that is stable before you introduce a dopaminergic compound is, is very gotcha. very important because otherwise you precipitate manic episodes you can really yeah. heavily impact on someone's mood um, it's, it's not those sort of ripples that I talked about if you've got um, depression or anxiety it's, it's a lot more profound so yeah have, having that assurance where there's a coexisting psychosis of having a, a, a good long-term plan of, of, of treatment for that condition first is really very, very important. But often, and I've seen this lots of times, we see, particularly in sort of young adults, we see a, a story of ADHD in childhood leading to late adolescence substance misuse and overdoing it, which leads to a drug-induced psychosis. Right. Yeah, so I found something that works, so I'm going to overdo it, induce mm. a psychosis, um, which can be temporary, um, yeah, but it can also, can also endure. Understanding that journey is really important as an ADHD specialist because it's, but this goes back to the, the addictions episode, doesn't it? Yeah, the, it does. the, it's the, the why did that start in the first place? And again, that sounds to me that that is why a good assessment is so important a good interviewer as we said last last week is so important the ability to listen to what's been said to get all of the information to then be able to decide what actually is being presented in front of you at that time yeah so it, it, we talk in adhd about trajectories um and then and then which is essentially just common paths that the we ADHD has taken in life um, mm. and and in an assessment we see those we see, we see people's stories unfolding and it, it it's really important that an assessor before diagnosing understands that journey yeah of course it is um you've done this great job uh, and I'll I'll try and include this in in perhaps the show notes of categorizing into four groups coexisting conditions by by those groups which i think is really helpful um the question that i think i just want to f sort of finish with on this bit is and we've asked this before about the information we give to the clinician we seek an adhd assessment from is as much as the assessment process is detailed, is it very important for people to come in and say, look, I've had episodes in the past of depression. There's thyroidism, you know, hyperthyroidism in the family, etc. Is this really important to volunteer if you don't see it asked? If it's not being asked, yes. It's because, there is, because it's a complex disorder, um, it's really important to... to to answer the questions that are asked of you, but also if you think something's important yeah. that hasn't been asked, then yes, of course, volunteer it. Right. Um, it it's, it's helpful, in, even if it's not relevant, the fact that you thought it was relevant helps us understand you and, and how you're understanding the challenges that you're facing. Yeah, sure. Um, but you, you know, people tend not to think of reporting their joint hypermobility as... as something <laughs> that they should do you know but actually in a case where it's looking like adhd but we're, we're 
we're missing something. There's, 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 there's something qualitatively not there. Knowing that you've got joint hypermobility can tip the balance mm-hmm. because there's such a high um, coexisting presentation of joint hypermobility alongside ADHD. So it can okay. be something as, that's complete. Sounds like it's completely off the wall. We'll just go. Oh yeah, that tips the balance into a diagnosis as compared to not. Um, right. And and vice versa. So sleep disorders are a, 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 a challenge for ADHD. So narcolepsy, for example, if we as, as ADHD assessors don't consider narcolepsy, then we could be diagnosing ADHD where it's not. Right. Um, okay. So, so all information is useful, even if it's only as a, a point of triangulation into understanding you as a person. Gotcha. Um, so the question that I I wanted to ask, because you've mentioned mood disorders, you've mentioned depression, you've mentioned bipolar. What are the most significant challenges then in treating those with or in treating ADHD when they coexist with with known sort of depression or or even you know suicidal ideation or mood disorders or are there you know are there challenges is or do you treat it the same but just with that information the sensitivity to response treatment response is different so you we're looking for different reactions um and, and perhaps more sensitive to things like becoming more anxious when the dose increases in a titration um and if there's a coexisting condition we would look to is this a feature of the treatment or is this a fe- or is this sort of a secondary consequence of so are, are we causing this or are we exacerbating something that, that was already mm. there um i I imagine, correct, this will also feature in a shared care agreement with a GP. So, so yes, um, it's, it's often not specified in, in a shared care agreement, but the, the guidance to both parties, the GP and the ADHD specialist, is there. So that relationship, if we see a coexisting condition becoming more problematic, it's about how we work together. So, you know, in a situation where I'll pause a titration or even stop ADHD medication um, in, in a shared care, so let's say we see an emergent psychotic feature and I think mm. actually we, we need to get that ADHD treatment out of there, part of shared care is I communicate that to the GP and say, okay, this is what my management plan would be. The same happens the other way. So often if we've got someone on shared care, they're on a stable treatment for ADHD, but they go to the GP um, and their mood's dipped. GP wants to start an antidepressant. I think this is probably the most common call I would get under shared care from a GP. It's often what a GP working in shared care with me will ring up and say, I'm not okay. really sure. I, I know what to do if it's if it's just depression, but actually with your treatment in there, I'm unsure about how that's going to interplay with what I do. In terms of that, in terms of coexisting conditions, does this affect long-term outlooks and, and health implications for someone with ADHD, or can it? Hey, folks, I just want to... 
jump in here to let you know that the next episode of Talk ADHD will be an employment law special. I'll be joined by solicitor, uh, director and founder of Talam Law, Mandy Orlack, to discuss all things to do with being disabled and being in employment. It's an episode that's useful for both employees and employers, and the big conversation piece within it is a real understanding of what reasonable adjustments are and what they mean to everybody. So that's episode 11. Next week, an employment law special. For now, back to this episode. We already know, because we've already talked about the idea of the long-term impact of having ADHD on mm. its own. There's going to be interplay between those diagnoses. There's going to be interplay between how they impact on someone's life and someone's life choices. Therefore, it's not unreasonable to assume that where there are coexisting conditions, the challenges are greater. Therefore, the stressors are greater, therefore the impact is going to be more significant. If you look at the um, the Scandinavian studies that I've talked about all the time, they don't filter out coexisting conditions in their reporting of, of ADHD. So if more than half of us with ADHD have coexisting conditions, then we're included in that. Yeah. This is a really great sort of summary for people to start with, to to understand that yes, there are coexisting conditions and how they interplay. Naturally, the next sort of phase of this this conversation then is about what else can we can we do? What else do we know to be beneficial um, in terms of helping ourselves manage ADHD and coexisting conditions? And I guess we're talking the realms of things like therapies um so cognitive behavioral therapy is mentioned a lot um in in your experience in, in your opinion if assuming 50 percent have got coexisting conditions is it beneficial to be looking at other as well as pharmacological treatments what's well, recommended in the guidelines that we do I know that ADHD specialists often don't, but that's about service pressures. Um, there, there are services out there that do add on these other things. Um, cognitive behavioral therapy in particular is helpful and is also seen in the literature as helpful for um, autism spectrum conditions. It's help, definitely helpful, and we've got lots of research evidence to show that it's helpful in affective disorders. Um, so often the first line of attack for an affective disorder, so those low-level depression, anxiety issues, is a primary care mental health team referral where you will get CBT. Less so with psychosis, but it's still there. The literature still says that, that DB, um, CBT is useful. I'll come to mm -hmm. DBT in a moment. Um, and, and also with physical health conditions, those long-term chronic conditions, CBT can itself be helpful. If, right. if you then add in ADHD, yes, it's helpful. Um, most clinicians, ADHD specialist clinicians, will say it's better to do those medicated than not medicated. It's not yeah. essential, but you'll get a better response because CBT is built around the idea that by changing the way we think, we can change the way we feel. Um, and from personal experience, CBT is really confusing when your ADHD is not treated with medications mm. 
Um, so I remember starting medication for ADHD and looking back at episodes of CBT that, that I'd had, and they made so much more sense. Ah, that's what they were saying. I think we right. talked about this in, it was it episode yeah, yeah, three, we, we talked about this, this idea that by having improved focus and concentration, you can engage better in psychological therapies. And I think mm -hmm. that's true um, because you're not going off on tangents. Um, and you can do things like CBT is very much rooted on homework. It's not something that just happens in the clinical session, no. that hour, hour a week or whatever you get. There, there are homework exercise set. There, there are things that you must do between sessions. And if, if you're forgetful, if you're disorganized and you're living in stress, the likelihood of doing those really important reinforcing activities between sessions is reduced. So, but that doesn't mean that they, they don't work. So I, I okay. think it's, it's more valuable to have CBT plus ADHD medication, but CBT on its own can work, but it's about commitment and engagement in that process and being and able to do what the therapist is asking you to do between sessions. So DBT then? DBT is really useful in ADHD. And I think it does sit outside of what I've just said about CBT. So. DBT is dialectical behavioral therapy. It is founded on the concepts of cognitive behavioral therapy, but it's very, very, uh, very, very focused on one particular aspect, and that's about emotional regulation. So DBT explores ideas of emotional dysregulation, understanding what emotions are, when they happen, why they happen, and helping to learn how to regulate that so it's enormously useful in ADHD where there is emotional dysregulation. Right. So can somebody engage in both? Would there be benefit to having DBT and CBT? I'm thinking coexisting conditions now. So if I had DBT to help me with my emotional dysregulation, RSD as an ADHDer, and I was trying to deal with underlying depression. Would it be useful or possible, would you think, to be able to engage in CBT for the depression, DBT for the other? It's possible. I think it would be challenging. It would probably be better to do one and then another. Right. Okay. Okay. And, and that's about understanding, I suppose, which is the primary thing that needs help first yeah, yeah exactly okay that makes perfect sense to me it's probably why i've never engaged with cbt i've got a cbt book and a dbt book hiding behind that cushion yeah, that curtain and i've never read both of them because and medicated so <laughs> you know it's hmm. you've, you've now made me reassess that okay so i think from the this clinical perspective, leaning on you a lot, and I know I've lent on you a lot so far in this conversation and your, your clinical knowledge. I hope that makes sense to people. There are things we can do. There are strategies that we can employ. And a good clinician and a good assessment is already taking into account the probability of coexisting conditions. Right? That's, that's looked for in a good assessment anyway. Absolutely. It, it is. And everything we've talked about so far is very much sits under the umbrella of clinical, even CBT and DBT. Yeah. This is where we, we clinicians have to acknowledge that we're working with people, not diagnoses. 
Um, yeah. I think there there are things which probably you can contribute to this conversation that sit beyond that. So there mm -hmm. are things, there are practical things that can be done where there are coexisting conditions, just as much as the things we've talked about just in ADHD it, in isolation, which is, which is less common yeah. than coexisting conditions. So it'd be useful to know from your perspective as a mentor and someone living with, with ADHD, what else can be done? What, what, what isn't the realm of a clinician? Yeah. Um, and I've been giving this some thought. So I think if I start from the mentoring coaching conversation we've had before, uh, I think absolutely engaging with a coach or a mentor is, is really, really sensible. Um, it's really useful whether you do it privately through access to work. It doesn't matter how you would do that. Very often, it's the ability to to just think out loud, to to get those thoughts out of my head about: Is this my ADHD? Is this autism? Is this stress, anxiety that is contributing to the way I am perceiving a situation or responding to something? Um, and, and, and a good mentor and a good coach is able to help people work through those questions, to help them come up with strategies, to help them reframe things um, and, and, and put them in perspective. And I certainly do that an awful lot with my, my clients. You know, any, any of the people that have worked with me will know my, my favorite two words are look for the evidence and then look at a way of reframing these thoughts that are, are in your head about X. So certainly engaging with that. From, from my point of view, the, the most useful thing is not going down a rabbit hole of reading everything that's out there and taking it as, as fact as it applies to you. So what I mean is I could share my opinion on what it means or feels like to live with ADHD and autism that may not be exactly the same for the person that reads my my experience it's a, about spending a lot of time i suppose introspective time understanding yourself whether that's pre or post diagnosis okay how do i react to certain situations is there a pattern do i do the same thing every time what what causes me to react very differently and and it's a question that again we spoke about in the addiction conversation why why am i doing those things what is it about those scenarios that's made me do that and from those answers from those why questions for me i get the information that then says right can i now see something like that coming sooner can I see where I might be triggered into RSD? Can I see where I might be triggered into some, some emotional dysregulation? And if I can, now can I put strategies in place, whether that's working with a coach or a mentor, whether that's engaging in a therapy, CBT, DBT, can I build a strategy around myself? But it's this understanding, this real knowledge that it's me. It's, okay, it's got, got to be about me. I've got a question here, and it's a really, really important one, I think, for people that are, that are watching or listening. Um, so at the beginning of, of our conversation today, we talked about 
how the diagnostic process boils things down and targets mm. specific features. Yeah. Do you think, from your experience of talking with people living with these diagnoses, that there's some harm coming from that process, that by making assumptions and, and allowing these shortcuts in the diagnostic process, which does access all the treatments I've talked about, that actually when you come to do these other things, which are a lot more human, mm. is there some baggage that's carried as a result of the assumptions made at the diagnostic process? Yes. Without question, there is. And I yeah. think it, where it's wrapped up most is in this concept of severity and and impact and challenge and, and, and deficit. You know, we, we can talk about the clinical model and the deficit model almost being the same thing because a clinical assessment is looking for the areas of deficit, not the areas of ability or potential, right? We're looking for the challenges. And I think it, it's a weird dichotomy. I saw assessment, I saw diagnosis for ADHD initially because the world had become too much for me. I was in a very, very bad place. I was purely focused on deficit. I can't, I haven't, I struggle with, and I wanted a clinician to confirm that for me because I felt that that would be the key to some sort of... I don't know, panacea, which I know is, is never the case. But actually, you're right. Once that was confirmed and I got that diagnosis and it said those words, severely disabling, combined subtype, it was like being kicked to the floor all over again. Because for a while, my framework, my perception of me was, oh, I'm not just struggling. I'm really struggling. I'm really disabled by this. And I'd not prepared myself for that. So I think that does create baggage for a lot of people because it, and you've, you've said this before, it literally fundamentally changes your perception of everything about you. Everything hmm. I thought was me to that point, gone. For a long time, just completely gone. Will the medication change me? Yes, it, will. it was so confusing whereas now i'm able to say actually yes whilst there are deficits whilst i understand what makes this severely disabling for me in terms of adhd i'm also able to understand the things i can do and to lean on my abilities and to lean on the things that i'm able to do you know it easily a second nature that others may find challenging but it's taken some time to get there it's taken some time for me not to focus on my deficits so i think that baggage is real um i i think very much it's it can be damaging um but that's where the role of a good coach or a good mentor comes in or even just a good network, you know, I'll go, that I think is so important. I've said this before, the finding your tribe, finding the people that go, I completely acknowledge all of the difficulties, but I'm going to give you the space to focus on what makes you 
a good person, a capable person, a, you know. It's because because the diagnostic process, and I can acknowledge that as a clinician, is is so focused in on the negative. It mm. has to be because it's defining disorder. You know that that horrible yeah. last D that sits at the yeah. end of many of 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 psychiatry's diagnoses. It's about what the, what is the function of that label? The function of that label is only to access certain treatment modalities that I've talked about, but actually there is something that sits alongside that or can be part of that. Um, mm -hmm. So I do try in my practice to remember people's strengths, to remember, to remind them that it isn't all about symptoms and, and the language of medicine, that there is a human experience and there's more to the diagnosis than the diagnosis. It is just a shorthand for clinicians to access and, and treatment. It is, and that, I think that, we've said this before, it's a starting point, not an end point. Diagnosis is a start. Your journey didn't end at diagnosis, it started. Yeah. And then the, 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 it's a start point often to titration on medication, which yeah. is a process of itself that changes things, but that isn't the end of the journey. That is when your focus and concentration is regulated the way you want it, if you've had a positive mm -hmm. titration. And then you start another journey where the sorts of things you've been talking about come into play very much. Yeah, they do. Absolutely. And and actually, this leads on to another part. Now, that just as a bit of a teaser, the next episode you'll get from us will be all about workplace. Um, so about ADHD and another in the workplace. But it will be a conversation where you will hear the word disability more than labels. And actually, this is a really important point for me that follows on from what we've just said. A diagnosis will redefine you. It will. You will define yourself by what that label you are given is. What is very important in terms of self-advocacy in the world after that, and particularly if we're in education or in the workplace, is understanding the correct way to define ourselves and to talk about our conditions that offers us protection against discrimination, against situations we might find ourselves in. So the concept of self-advocacy going forwards is really important because it's about coming to terms with this new information. It's about recognizing that you may have been given a label which is considered to be a disability in terms of something like the Equalities Act. And that that isn't saying you're less than, that isn't saying your value is diminished. It's saying that it's an important thing for you to own so that when you need to ask for support, when you need to ask for, let's say, reasonable adjustments, it's within the framework of, I have a disability, which means my ability to do certain things is diminished and I need support. And understanding how we talk about ourselves and being confident in that is so, so important. Because there's still stigma attached to it, isn't there? I think that's really complicated where there are coexisting conditions. If you're depressed, it's very difficult to separate out that definition of disability in terms of your diagnosis of ADHD. Mm -hmm. 
if you're depressed, if you're anxious and, and you're having problems at work to, to advocate for yourself and assert for yourself when, when you're worried about X, Y, and Z because your mm -hmm. anxiety is, is aggravated by these challenges, it can be really, really difficult. Um, yeah. you, you use the word communicate a lot in what you just said about self-advocacy. That can be really challenging if you've got yeah. coexisting autism spectrum condition. Yeah. Um, so I think it's it's the it's the next episode, isn't it? That we, we're going to be yeah. looking at this in more detail. It is I, very I much. Think, yep. I think we need to be considering how coexisting conditions interplay. It's not just about oh, you've got ADHD, therefore it's a disability, and we we can put all these categories in place. But but if we don't consider the impact of these coexisting conditions which are more common than not mm. we're going to miss something in that episode so there's a note to make for, for next yeah, time there is. so look i think i think in, as a as a final question we've spoken a lot about the person with what if you know if it's us with if it's you looking at someone with We've done two episodes now on relationships in different ways. We've, you know, we've looked at this, but there's a question here. Now, this is for you as dad, as as husband, as, you know, as, as friend, son, the whole thing. And for me, what what's your advice for your loved ones or for, for people's loved ones in terms of supporting you when you're challenged by ADHD or whatever it is what do you think a good a sort of starting point or a good approach is I think the starting point is there's lots of advice for these individual conditions so as a carer of someone you can get advice around supporting someone who's depressed that you love you can get advice around supporting someone with ADHD that you love someone who's autistic that you love what you as someone who loves someone who has multiple labels have to do is take your understanding of that person and your love for that person and then factor in all of these different bits of advice um, because they're all relevant but actually there's only you as the carer can pull all of that into the right way to express your care for that person because it might not be the right way. So, so um, it might be counterproductive to push someone into activity be, when they're low in mood and have ADHD because they may need that space. They may need that decompression time. Mm. Or it could be the, the opposite. So it's about communicating. It's back to the stuff we said in the relationships yeah. episodes, isn't it? It's, it's about it that dialogue. It's, it's really important. But yeah, it's it's possible to take snippets of advice from from those disorder specific sources of information, but it's on you and your relationship with that person to to negotiate what's best because it, it's not necessarily what the depression advice is for a carer is going to fit for the person you care for who is, has ADHD and is depressed. No, it's not as straightforward as that. It's it's human. Um, so it's, it's remembering the boiling down of diagnoses is a process. It's not a, it doesn't adequately define you as a person anymore in terms of the four letters of ADHD as it does with depression, anxiety, or um, bipolar yeah. affective disorder, hyperthyroidism. You know, all of these things interplay 
and manifest in the person that you care about. So that comes first. The the diagnoses are second. I think that's a really good summary as a starting point for people to understand what it means to to have coexisting conditions, to to be diagnosed with them or assessed with them, and and then going forwards. Um, as ever, folks, if you have questions, you can join the WhatsApp community if you want to ask them there, or you can you can leave comments. Please do subscribe wherever you're listening to this please please like that and that alone makes a huge difference to us in in just being seen by other people um and the more people we're seen by the more this information is out there uh but for now i think for episode 10 that was absolutely fantastic because it's information that people need as ever so andrew thank you very very much Onwards to episode 11, which uh, will be, as I say, a very, very interesting discussion on the workplace, on on advocating for yourself in the workplace, and particularly on this conversation around reasonable adjustments and what they mean. Um, so please do join us for that next Thursday. But for now, that was Talk ADHD episode 10. And thank you very much for watching and listening.